Today's readings from 2 Peter 2, verses 1 to 10, false teachers and their destruction. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false prophets, false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so... And the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despite authority. Nice and quiet after that, isn't it? Way to bring the mood down, Peter. Why does the Bible have to be so negative sometimes? Nobody wants to hear about judgment and destruction, heresy and lies. It's like we're listening to the 18th century Puritan fun police, aren't we? It's tempting to think this way at times, isn't it? We should be about positive things, not negative stuff. Certainly there are many in our society who think this way. It's a bit like a parent who tries so hard to focus only on positive affirmation rather than negative threats or raw, uh, rewards rather than punishment or encouragement rather than rebuke. Negative warnings? No thanks. Who wants them? But what is it that we see up on the screen here? Are these positive, sunny Rewards-based images? They're not, are they? They're incredibly negative. They warn of death and demise, of destruction. And research shows that, at least to a point, they work. They force people to reconsider their smoking or their speeding or their drink driving or texting or whatever it might be. In fact, as I was researching To get some pictures, I came across a horrific speeding ad coming out of Northern Ireland where a guy loses control, flips the car and basically plows over a classroom of preschoolers. And it was shocking. I I, I could not believe that that's what was put on TV. And it made me stop and think all through this week about how my speed is going. I was looking very carefully because it works. And this is the tact, in many ways, that Peter is using here in chapter 2 of his second letter. He's using negative warnings to wake people up 
and to drive them back to the truth. The truth which we've considered over the beginning of this series as we looked at chapter 1 and especially the second half of chapter 1 which Tim took us through a few weeks ago. The truth which is God's inspired word through the prophets and apostles. The truth which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course the truth which is his return one day. That he will come back. That there will be judgment. That we'll all be held to account. And see there were two truths that were being denied by false teachers in the early church. One was that God's judgment against sin was not that real. It may not even happen. God is sleeping on the job and it doesn't really bother him what we do in this physical realm. He's not going to judge us. And so Peter tackles this quite significantly here in this chapter, chapter 2. The other truth that was being denied was Jesus' return. The parousia, as we call it. They were saying, well, this isn't really going to happen. God is so fast asleep that he's not even going to come back. So why worry? Why live in fear or anticipation? Just take it easy. And so Peter tackles that denial in chapter 3 especially. And if you think about it, these were the same things that false prophets in the Old Testament so often denied. For example, we read in Micah chapter 2, it quotes those prophets. And they say, do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy, he's talking about the real prophets. Do not prophesy about these things, which is judgment and destruction. Disgrace will not overtake us, they say. We're all good, God doesn't punish. That day will never come. Stop thinking about judgment. And, and just enjoy yourself. Focus on the good stuff. And so the first thing that Peter wants to remind us in this passage is that false teachers exist. They're real. They are not make-believe boogeymen. They are not just an antiquated breed from ancient times. They are in all times. And he says they are among you. They are in your midst. Perhaps even here today. They are in the church, he's saying. And they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. And we might say, whoa, wait a minute. We don't still use that word, do we? Heresy? You know, isn't that just a word from a bygone era where priests and bishops would burn heretics at the stake? Just an excuse for like barbaric practices? Well, unfortunately not. As much as false teachers or heretics exist, so does false teaching and heresy. But it is unpopular to say so, to talk about. As Christian hip-hop artist Chai Lin says, today the only heresy is saying that there's heresy. If you, saw, if you talk about heresy, heresy, that's when people will say, you know, be gone, foul people. The only thing that people don't want to hear is that something could be untrue. Something could be false. It could be a lie. 
But if there is truth, as Peter assumes, objective, absolute truth, then there has to be lies and falseness and heresy. There was in the Old Testament when prophets denied God's coming judgment. There was in Peter's day when Gnostics, that's what we call them, Gnostics, they denied that physical actions would have any spiritual consequences. And there is today when leaders and teachers deny the significance of sin and judgment. And in so doing, the significance of grace. Not to mention false teachers who teach fulfillment in prosperity. Lying about how God wants you to be rich and wealthy in this life. Or false teachers who teach salvation by charity. Where, where God's gospel love in Jesus matters less than our charitable love towards each other. But it's easy to point fingers, isn't it? To point at particular preachers or churches or even society as a whole and say, yeah, look at all that falseness going on. We so easily forget to reflect on the lies in our own lives, in our own hearts, the the lies that so often inform our actions. For example, we believe Here in this church, we believe in the universal corruption of sin. Total depravity, we call it. Within ourselves, it's within others, it's everywhere. And yet we so often fail to confess that sin. And we so often fail to challenge it lovingly in others and to help each other deal with it. We live a lie. We believe in the humility and the sacrifice and the surrender of discipleship and its totality. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, Jesus says. Lose your life. We believe in that. But we fail to remove our idols. We let greed rule our hearts just as the world does. We live a lie. We believe that works cannot save us. Only God's grace can save us. That is at the top of our list of doctrines. And yet we judge ourselves and others by those works. We forget that grace. We live a lie. And it's as we see in the next part of the passage that truth and righteousness go hand in hand. And Peter even starts to mix the two things together. Righteous living, truthful living, it's kind of one and the same. They cannot be separated. And so neither can sin and lies. They are kind of one and the same as well. They go together in our hearts. Thankfully, God's mercy is much greater than our lies and our sin. And we'll come to that in a bit. But our warning is there. Flee from falseness. Run from it. And pursue the truth. Now this of course requires that great word discernment. Requires discernment. Or as Jesus says, we are to be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Shrewd in our pursuit of the truth. 
innocent in our pursuit of righteousness. Because he sends us out like sheep among wolves. And some of those wolves, they look mighty attractive. And some of their words are mighty appealing. But we need to stick to the gospel, to the scriptures. That is where we stand. As we considered in the last passage, that is the inspired word of God, straight from his mouth. So watch out. Discern falsehood. We're going to talk more about the characteristics of false teaching and teachers next week, particularly their indulgence in fleshly and selfish practices. But here's just a few things that these opening verses highlight. Watch out for unbiblical teaching. For anything that does not ring with scriptural truth. Which also means we've got to know the truth of scripture, don't we? Keep reading it. Watch out for loose morality. Excusing sin when people sort of shrug off sin and say, don't worry about that or that's not important, it's not a big deal. Watch out for that. That's dangerous territory. Watch out for desired popularity or celebrity. Those who wish to become famous and take advantage of their position. Watch out for corrupt evangelism when it becomes all about numbers and marketing and getting in the crowds rather than discipleship, rather than humility. And watch out for exploiting greed. Those who would make money off the church and off Christians. Because where you see these things, destruction is looming. That's Peter's next point. The way of lies does not end well. It is the emphysema on the cigarette packet. It is the mangled body being pulled from a drunk driving car wreckage. It is death. It doesn't matter how many times people say to each other, judge not, tolerate this, tolerate that. The reality is that judgment cometh from God. And so Peter gives three examples, all from the book of Genesis, about God's judgment. First, he talks about the angels who sinned and were sent to hell and chained up there. Now, this most likely refers to uh, Genesis chapter 6, the start of Genesis 6, where it talks about the sons of God who left his throne room in order to marry uh, the daughters of humans. There's a lot of mystery around that passage and the Nephilim and all of that kind of stuff. But what we do know, and what Peter's point is, is that God didn't spare the angels from judgment. Why would he spare human beings? And so secondly, immediately after that episode in Genesis 6, there's the judgment of the flood. The whole world, the whole earth, full of ungodly people is the language that's used there. And it's kind of stepping up a bit from sinful, from ungodly people. They are washed away by this flood. Except, of course, Noah Uh, Peter calls him a preacher of righteousness, righteousness and truth. 
And he, with his family, escape on a literal lifeboat, don't they? And then thirdly, he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. The twin cities of depraved, lawless people. And the language kind of comes to a head there. The sin, ungodliness, depravity and lawlessness. These people are destroyed by fire from heaven. But again, a righteous man, not perfect, but a righteous man, Lot, with his family, escapes the judgment. And so we have these three examples that Peter gives, and he puts them in chronological order, but he also kind of reduces them in scale. You start with heaven, and then down to the realm of the whole earth, and then even just to these two uh, small cities. And probably what comes next is individuals. And he also increases that language from sin to ungodliness to lawlessness and depravity. What's he, what's he saying? That all unrighteousness and falseness and ungodliness is judged and condemned. False teachers and so much of the world think that God's judgment is sleeping. As it says in verse 3, that their destruction is sleeping. And perhaps it will not wake. But Peter is saying, it hangs over your head, right there. As surely as the angels were locked up and the earth was flooded and Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed and even Israel, a little later in Scripture, is ransacked and exiled, so sure is the judgment of the unrighteous. There is no escape. That's the point. There is no escape. But don't miss that this is not just about God's direct judgment. Some of this destruction of liars and heretics, it comes from natural consequences too. Because God has designed this world and he's designed it around truth, which is himself. And so lies and falsehoods will always come back to bite. They will always end badly. They always have and they always will. While the truth offers natural freedom, and we all know it, don't we? You know, when you confess something, ah, freedom. But in the same way, lies and falseness causes natural bondage, binds us, restricts us like we're wearing a straitjacket. A lie to another person Binds you to keeping that lie and secreting the truth away. And if you speak falsity to others or teach false things, well then you can always be found out and it might ruin you. And we remember what Jesus said. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, It would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. So should I ask, hands up, if this passage makes you feel like you're wearing a bit of a millstone right now. It's it's heavy stuff, isn't it? It is weighty, it is depressing, it is burdensome. And you know what? In many ways, as it should be. Sin is not light. Judgment is not light. It's heavy. 
But it is no accident that Peter mentions here these two examples of people who escaped destruction. He doesn't have to drop Noah's name. He doesn't have to drop Lot's name. He doesn't have to say, as he does in verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. It's not the main part of his point here. But he, he says it. Why does he mention them? Because he's reminding us that even though there's no escape, there is an escape. The ship might be sinking, but there are lifeboats available. Judgment may be inevitable, but it is not inescapable. So what is our escape? Well, for Noah and for Lot, uh, as Peter says, it was righteousness. It was godliness. It was seeking God and obeying him. It was uh, doing what is right and keeping his law and serving him faithfully. And we all go, well, that, that's easy. Don't we? Simple. No worries at all. Surely that weighty millstone is lifted off you now. And you're feeling light and sunny and free. All I have to do is be righteous and godly and good all the time. No, of course that's not the way. In fact, I think sometimes the possibility of escape makes us feel even more burdened. The possibility of rescue, if it is just out of reach, That's how it goes with righteousness. It's a little bit like if we're on that sinking ship, we're on the Titanic, the boats are already a kilometre away and we suck at swimming. And rather than encouraging us that there's lifeboats, it taunts us. It taunts us, doesn't it? But this is where Jesus comes to our rescue. And through him... God gives us escape. And I can think of no better way to say it than if you already got your brain in the Titanic movie, perhaps think that the eagles from the Lord of the Rings movie swoop in and pick up people off the Titanic. You know, the eagles are a cheat anyway. But imagine that. No hope, there it is. This is the truth of the person of Jesus Christ. Rescue, escape from what should be death. This is the good news. This is the gospel. His death and resurrection, that he forgives our sins, that he dies our death, that he grants us eternal life. And so death and destruction don't have to be our end. We can have life. He sinks on the ship for us. He gets smashed up in the car for us. He cops lung cancer and dies from it for us. How is this achieved? Well, through the wonderful reality that is redemption. And it's a beautiful word, redemption. What does it mean? It means rescue. Being set free from a cage or a trap. Being plucked from the path of destruction. Being saved from the sinking ship. But it also means purchase. 
means being ransomed for a price. This is what Peter alludes to back in verse 2 when he says that the heretics even deny the sovereign Lord who bought them. And he's saying these guys actually have tasted and seen what redemption is about. They have seen the grace of God in Jesus. And even that they have denied. And so destruction is swift. But this is redemption that we are purchased and redeemed and ransomed because Jesus pays for our souls with his blood. He pays the price of humility as God who came into the world as a man. He pays the price of righteousness as the perfect man who obeyed and lived perfectly in every way. And he paid the price of condemnation when he died in our place to give us his life. And if we accept it, it doesn't mean we're just rescued and then set off on our way. It means we are purchased. We are owned. We are possessed by the Lord Jesus. See, the way of lies, as verse 10 shows us, is to selfishly follow the flesh. And as I mentioned, we'll talk more about the indulgence of the flesh in next part of the passage. But it also means that delusion of being your own boss. There's me and I'm the boss of what I do with my body, with who I am. So it's to selfishly follow the flesh and to despise authority. And there's the crunch, isn't it? To reject God's rule, to reject Jesus' possessive redemption, to despise authority. But the way of truth, the way to escape and be saved, that is to be purchased and redeemed by Christ, to be bought by Him and owned by Him, and to find righteousness, godliness, and life in Him. If you don't believe in Jesus, can I ask that you hear this message as a plea? It's like we're there on the deck of a sinking ship and urging you to the lifeboats. Please get on the lifeboats. Consider it like the pictures on the cigarette pack or the ads against drink driving. Consequences are not a hoax. They're not made up. They're real. They're truth. And the truth sets us free if we acknowledge it and find rescue in Jesus. And if you do believe in Jesus, can I ask that you recognize how this warning is directed at you? And I'm not saying that you are the false teachers that Peter is talking about not calling you heretics. But in the sense that God always, always holds the knowledgeable to greater account than the ignorant, it is directed at us who have tasted redemption, who know the truth, and that those who know His grace and His truth should know better when it comes to lies. We have no excuse for living by lies. So watch what you learn and what you teach. Discern 
the input, discern what is coming in through your ears and into your hearts, but also evaluate what is coming out from your heart through your mouth. Be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Shrewd in that input and innocent in that output. Remember what we're always saying here, that we're all leaders and we are all teachers because we're prophets, priests and kings. And so we all have a responsibility to share the gospel and the Bible rather than worldly wisdom. And to live out the righteousness that Jesus has given us. And let people know that that's where righteousness comes from. Keep your head and your heart in the scriptures. Speak the truth to one another in love. And never forget what we have escaped. By the grace of God. I want to finish with these words from Psalm 124. Which are a great reminder of our escape. Psalmist says, if the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, let the church say, if the Lord had not been on our side when people attacked us, they would have swallowed us alive. When their anger flared against us, the flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken and we have escaped. Thank you, Jesus. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glimmer of hope that starts small and enlarges in our lives until it fills us completely. This hope that is the gospel, the good news of escape and rescue, the unexpected, undeserved, incomprehensible scope of what we avoid in judgment and destruction and the life that we gain instead thanks to Jesus the grace the mercy the love the belonging and the eternity Lord we confess how easy it is to forget these great truths and to continue operating by the lies in the world around us and the lies of our own hearts. Forgive us, Lord. We know better. And may we know, sorry, may what we know from your truth and your scriptures, may that penetrate our hearts every day, every moment, freeing us from captivity to lies and sin. May it release us relieve us and revive us. May we cling to it 
Lord, may it never leave us or leave our sight. We thank you for your truth, especially that of the redemption of Jesus. May we celebrate it always in Jesus' name. Amen.